Hello, and welcome to God Save the Screen. This is Zach Christensen, and on the other line, we have Mr. Jordan Garrett. And this is your favorite podcast to talk about movies, TV, and actually, that's it's just movies and TV. That's all we do. We don't really do anything else. Well, okay, fine. I and was going to say, I and, suppose. and luxurious French cuisine, but no. <laughs> Welcome. The, our chef is a rat. <laughs> uh, underrated Pixar movie for sure. Ratatouille. I would. Is say. it underrated? Do people not like it? I feel like when people talk about Pixar movies, it's routinely forgotten. People think like Monsters Inc., Toy Story. You know, the mainstream ones, and Ratatouille I, is. You know, it's it's a rat who makes food. People don't you know think about it. I think it's because you can't sell a rat like it's just not as engaging it's it's like you can sell uh you know the pink furry monster it doesn't quite Um, have the marketing pizzazz of a race car (laughs) right yes the race car got three movies because you can sell it the rat got one movie um, (laughs) that was salvaged by brad bird um but you know what disney can sell what can disney Uh, sell uh stupid ass memes of baby yoda (laughs) tell me how you really feel about the mandalorian zach have we talked about disney plus at all we have not um we both have disney plus i've watched the first couple episodes the mandalorian Mm -hmm. um you've continued to watch the mandalorian i have i'm all caught up have you watched anything else on disney plus i've watched like a random movie here and there but not like any of the other original shows they do not appeal to me Mm-mm, they do not the i don't know um, who they appeal to <laughs> i did watch an episode of recess recess oh, like from way it. back in the day yeah recess yes i love it um yeah it was it was a real big throwback like the theme song started playing and i was like oh, i know this like deep within myself i know this <laughs> um i stopped watching the mandalorian you did and I don't feel bad about that. Solely because of Baby Yoda, correct? No, not solely because of Baby Yoda. I mostly stopped watching because I thought it was boring. Okay. And it didn't seem like anything was going to happen besides a fetch quest every week or a Baby Yoda meme. I think I think it just depends on what your expectations are going into the show. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're expecting, like, a serialized, long, long-running story with like intricate weaving plot threads and those substantial supporting cast etc it's not going to be the show for you but if you kind of get into like the procedural mode where and you know like that's what bounty hunters do they like they go get things and kill people and do missions and then go back and get another mission like that's what they do now i'm fine with that i actually i have this memory serialized shows are not as much of a thing anymore but Mm -hmm. i remember my dad uh, really enjoyed back in like the eighties watching the James Garner show, the Rockford files. So oh, yeah. I, I wasn't alive in the eighties granted, um, <laughs> but the DVD copies came out. And so we got him the DVDs um, and I watched some of those with him. And I remember being like, this is great. This is a very entertaining show. I'm always going to want to want to sit down and watch an episode of the Rockford files. Uh-huh. Um, but how about today? <laughs> well, <laughs> James Garner was an interesting actor and had like a dynamic performance in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, and Pedro Pascal is also an interesting actor, but 
does not have a dynamic performance and sits there and goes, mm, I must get, get the egg, you know. Like that's the extent. <laughs> that's like the extent of what I've gotten from his character so far. How how much do you feel is how how much of that do you feel is because like he keeps his helmet on the entire time? Like if you could um, see his face, would you feel differently? Perhaps, but I think the whole the whole shtick is that he's the, he's the straight guy, and you don't have the the like funny guy to play off of, or you don't have somebody else to play off of, and like Nick Nolte as a a little curmudgeon is not doing it for me um <laughs> i don't know it just i i have let's put it this way if this show was not branded star wars uh-huh. no one would give a a single flying fuck about this show i think in fact per- people i think would actively dislike it mm. okay if you take if you made every single thing about this the same it, what if it, what if every single thing about this was the same except you tweaked all of the things that were like direct star Wars language and made it instead of like Mandalorian, it's like the Mandaluvian or something. And it was like a knockoff, you know, (laughs) the Mandaluvian, which is not any more absurd than the fucking Mandalorian. It's the same. Like there's anyway, I like it because you're right. It is in the star Wars universe, which is great, but it's a different type of star Wars story than we have seen and probably ever will see in like a movie because it's it's focused on like smaller like contained stories it doesn't have to be some big like you know planet hopping universe spanning epic type thing so i like that it's it's just a different mode for star wars that you know i've never really gotten before and it's fun and the production value is exceptionally high that's true that's true which you wouldn't get on the mandalorian I don't mind that it's small. I just want it to be good. Like it's just okay. boring. I'm bored. Yeah. And and I hate that it's all just turned into baby Yoda memes on Twitter. Like that's all it is. And then the baby brands Yoda memes are overwhelming. Grab on to baby Yoda. So like Seahawks Twitter this week was like baby Yoda Russell Wilson. And it's like no, I don't that's not what I want. <laughs> not everything has to be baby Yoda. My heart does melt every time I see baby Yoda, but I do not need to see it on Twitter too. Uh, I would like it contained to the show because mm-hmm. you're right. The memes have gotten out of control. Yeah. It's, I also think it's all so <laughs> contrived. Baby Yoda is designed just to make your heart melt and to do nothing else. Mm. Hmm? That's mm. what, that's what I got to say about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just take a big fat poop all over the show. I, I will say that the most recent episode that aired this last Friday, slight spoilers if you're still listening, but, uh, it it does kind of maybe reveal like another like shoe that's about ready to drop in terms of you know some longer running narrative things that are going to play out um with a bounty he goes to find and it kind of goes south and then uh you see something in like the tag at the end of the episode where you're like oh okay that's interesting what's going to happen now and as opposed to like cool this thing is entirely done now we're going to go to a, a different planet Different people, everything. It seems like there'll be some slight carryover to future episodes, which is kind of cool. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. But Baby Yoda is still alive, so I don't know. Congratulations, Baby Yoda. (laughs) Uh, We should move on. We've talked way too much about that stupid show, The Mandalorian. We got a couple movies on the docket today. It's like peak movie season right now, and I love it. Oh, man. 
I've seen I've seen so many movies in the last month. It's been great. I feel like I have, and then I realized that like the movie that I was thinking of is actually like the equivalent of like two and a half other movies. So like I've actually have seen fewer movies than I thought. So. Well, there you go. Have you seen the Mister Rogers movie? I have not. It's very good. Tom Hanks heard, is in it. I've heard it's good. He plays Mister Rogers. And uh, our boy Matthew Reese is in it too. Correct. As the Matthew reporter Reese is in it, yeah. I so this is not one of our two movies that we're supposed to talk about, but it's so weirder than you think it is. The Mister Rogers movie, yeah. Oh, it's it seems kind of very set like up. heartwarming Christmas like family type movie. Well, it it is, but it's kind of set up like an adult episode of Mister Rogers. <laughs> oh, like he like starts he like comes on like he's doing the show and then like talks to you like you're the like the subject of the show like you're a kid sitting in front of the tv mm-hmm. um and it's yeah it's just weird there's a bunch of little moments that like um not quite break the fourth wall because it's like the style of what he did in the tv show way back when but the whole thing is like not really it's not a normal biopic it does things a little bit differently in a very good okay. way okay cool so i definitely want to see it i'm looking forward to seeing it I think it's funny that he he plays a, like a reporter in the Mr. Rogers movie, correct? Matthew Reese, yeah. Yeah, and then so I also just watched uh, The Report recently that just came out on Amazon, okay, uh, which is about the CIA's torture program, and he plays a reporter in that movie. And then I believe he played a reporter in The Post, too. Yeah, but everybody in the post is a reporter, so does that right? Count? But it's like those are the three main movies that I've seen him in since the Americans ended, and so it's like, is he just going to be like the reporter for the rest of his career? So, I don't know. Yeah, he's got that kind of like curmudgeonly, kind of uh, scrappy, s- scrappy, serious, but like likable but sad, and Thoughtful. that's like a reporter. <laughs> sad, yeah, sad and serious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the news business is dying, so and the news they have to report isn't particularly favorable these days. So I would be sad and serious, too, if I was a a newsman. Okay, but but the Mr. Rogers movie worth seeing? Highly worth seeing. Loved it. Okay, okay. Touched my heart. Touched your heart. Very cool. But that's not the movie we're going to talk about uh, today in earnest, just because I have not seen it yet. But there are two two major movies that have come out recently that we have both seen in pretty quick succession to each other, which is like an accomplishment for us. Well uh, done, us. I'm very, very proud of our uh, our work here. Um, the first one is Knives Out, uh, which is directed by uh, Ryan Johnson, who you may or may not love after seeing The Last Jedi. Do you love him more or less than J.J. Abrams? You know, I honestly couldn't tell you. I think probably less. And that's only because, like, he's done fewer projects than J.J. Abrams. Okay. But not, like, that wouldn't be a direct relation upon, like, Star Wars and their... No, in terms of Star Wars, I felt like their movies were, like, they're mostly, they're mostly, like, both meh experiences. (laughs) Got it. Okay. Well, get ready for some more meh then, because J.J. Abrams is back. Though better than Colin Treverton, you've got to say this: J.J. Abrams, Colin is Treverton, yeah, the guy that did like Jurassic World, or... Trevorrow, Trevorrow, 
Trevor, yeah, whatever his Tre- name is. I don't, yeah, it's Trevor. <laughs> Trevorton. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, no, definitely a better uh, step up from him. Thankfully, he had the the gumption to put out the Book of Henry last year and uh, or two years ago and lost his job because of it. So there you go. That's that's what you got to learn, kids. If you take risks, you probably will fail because of them. <laughs> I I don't mean to shit all over him. Like I like safety not guaranteed. Jurassic World was fine but no it wasn't (laughs) no it wasn't i did not like jurassic world who am i kidding (laughs) yeah jurassic world was terrible jurassic world 2 also terrible uh i don't think he directed that one but well still but we're gonna take a poop all over it and let's just get the whole series fair enough uh but yes should not be directing a star wars movie there you go. And he's not. J.J. Abrams is back. Anyway, Ryan Johnson directed The Last Jedi. All tangents today. <laughs> yeah. So Knives Out is a murder mystery. But I feel like when I've tried to explain this to people recently, they hear murder mystery like true crime. Um, people oh. are like, oh, no, no, I, I don't like scary. Um, and it's what? like, no, no, it's, it's like a, it's like a mystery movie, but like, uh, it's like fun and funny and kind of, you know, like a old fashioned one, but not old fashioned. Wait, scary. Why do people think scary with murder mystery? Like, I think they're thinking like, but like true crime. Like I think they're thinking Mindhunter or, um, Mindhunter is not scary. Well, no, but it's like psychological thriller. Like, I okay. don't know. Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, like, it's that, the, like, kind of intensity we've ramped up in the movies around, like, I see. solving a mystery. Okay. Yeah, I, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo is the right piece to name here, because that's, For like, sure. a mystery book, and they turn it into a movie, but the mysteries are, like, so dark and evil, and, you know. It's definitely uh, not a light movie. No. Clue is not the, not the movie of the decade anymore. We're, we're long past 1990. Although this feels like fairly similar to Clue, a yeah. little bit, very much so. Um, do you want to do you want to take a stab at like giving a quick recap or saying something about the movie? Yeah. Besides that, it's a murder, murder mystery. So we've said it's a murder mystery, which might make you think it's a who done it. But Knives Out isn't really a who done it, but it's more of a why done it because you kind of are told straight up at the end of the first act what exactly happened. Uh, and then you have to kind of figure out what's happening from there. Uh, and it's a very interesting kind of riff on a pretty tried and true genre that, that hasn't seen a lot of like refreshing takes recently. But uh, Knives Out has both that unique riff and an absolutely phenomenal cast, which includes but is not limited to Daniel Craig, uh, Chris Evans, Anna de Armas, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, Lakeith Stanfield, and Christopher Plummer. Yep. It's Fire. got that little kid from It, too. Oh, uh, Jaden Martell? Yeah, sure. Yeah, the one that he plays. He plays in, like, a little, what do they call him? The little Nazi boy in this one. It's <laughs> yeah. like an alt-right uh, Instagram user or something. He's in it for, like, five minutes. So that doesn't, it's not really worth mentioning. I think we've talked about him more now than he is on this in the podcast movie. than he is in the movie. <laughs> um, maybe, unless he did it. He didn't do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
the cast is good, isn't it? Did you have a favorite cast person? Uh, I love Chris Evans in this movie. It's such a different role than we've seen him in over the last number of years. And I really like it a lot. Daniel Craig is very interesting in this movie because it's, it's a very different persona than James Bond, but his his accent just does not work for me in this movie. <laughs> no? No, not at all. It's like, this is the thing about it, is his accent's over the top, but everything's over the top about this movie. It's, that's um, very true. It's like the the house looks like the painting that you'd imagine of this house, and like Jamie Lee Curtis with these like, bug-eyed glasses is like this exaggeration of what you'd imagine like rich jamie lee curtis would be, look like mm-hmm. um uh, michael shannon's always over the top and intense but he's got this limp and he's like over the top and intense and it's like everyone's so much more it it does feel like this like grandioseness and so i thought the accent worked because of the movie like purposely being over the top yeah that's fair uh, it just took me a long time to like place what kind of accent it was. And then I was like, oh, I guess Louisiana. Uh, but I don't know. It was just it was just weird. I don't know. It made it all worth it for CSI KFC. <laughs> that, <laughs> yes. Uh, I think just the translation from like his normal like English accent to a Louisiana accent was just like there's definitely some spots in there where you're like, oh, yeah, that's definitely not his his native accent by yeah. any means. Yeah. It's all right. It, I thought it still worked. He was he was very silly in it, which is fun to see him do something that's very not James Bond and like very silly and fun and loose. Yes, it's nice to see him kind of free himself from the shackles of the ultra serious James Bond and do something like fun for a change. Because from everything I've heard over the last like couple James Bond movies, like the productions have not been fun and sound absolutely excruciating. So like, good on him for having the opportunity to do something something new. Well, I he has to be paid a lot of money to do James Bond. So hopefully he's made his money and he can go do things that are fun now. <laughs> he's also old. It's been like 15 years since he was in the first one. like The first James Bond? Yeah. Which is actually like the 19th James Bond, but you know. <laughs> That's neither here nor there. Back to Knives Out. Um, it's It's somewhat hard to talk about this movie without like, doing spoilers and part of it is like the story itself that's why it's so fun is trying to like piece together everything that's happening so i guess did you have a favorite part or like a favorite element of this movie in particular you mean besides chris evans sweater oh man that sweater is so good how do i want to say this i think what i liked most about it was not any one specific piece but like the sense that each layer of the movie making process clearly was done thoroughly and with a lot of with a lot of like um joy in it so the script is great like the script works like each of the characters in it feels fully fleshed like i imagine reading the script itself would be an enjoyable thing yeah uh, and so that's great right like to have something that that, that first layer of the cake is like so good and then you get like the energy with which it's with which it's directed, and that's also really fun and mm-hmm. keeps going and um, continually draws you into the movie. You never are lost in it. And then each of the performances, um, and then the little like uh, twists and tricks along the way are also really fun. So the movie just sort of like builds 
uh, so it's the the different layers and how well they all work together that I'd say would be my favorite part besides Chris Evans' sweater. Yeah. For those of you who have not seen Knives Out, he wears this extra large but still very form-fitting sweater. It's very poofy. It looks like it's just straight-up lamb's wool. Like you could just curl up and fall asleep right into his chest. Like it's a beautiful sweater. That's all I can really say. Go look up a picture of Chris Evans' sweater. It should be easy to find. <laughs> uh, did you have a favorite part of it? I, other than the sweater, I just really like just the cast in general. The cast was like, there wasn't really a weak link out of the bunch, even for the smaller roles that didn't have a lot to do. Like Christopher Plummer isn't really in the movie all that much, but he is great as this like patriarch of the family. And then uh, it's like you said, the the characters just feel very fleshed out and fully formed and very unique from each other. Uh, And it's, it's fun to just see like, actors of this caliber and so many of them just like play off each other in these bigger bombastic scenes. Uh, and I don't know. It was, it was just fun. I didn't like love the story in general. Like it was really easy for me to figure out like what happened like pretty early on, uh, like how it was like eventually going to end regardless, but it's still a very fun time. It's a movie like that's just an enjoyable watch, which is obviously a a great experience. So yeah, this is one of those movies. I felt like they did a nice job of playing the different layers of suspense. So there's some times where you didn't know what was happening and the movie was purposely withholding stuff. And then a lot of times where you knew something that another character didn't know. And so you're, it was constantly playing with that level of information, which is a very like Hitchcock thing to do. I feel like I yeah. toss out Hitchcock as an example for lots of stuff, but that those different forms of creating suspense and like drawing viewers into it and like both keeping them close and pushing them away, I thought mm-hmm. really worked with the the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't necessarily see what was coming. I didn't think it was like super easy to figure it all out. Um, but I wasn't necessarily like surprised when it all happened, you know? Uh, but it's a sort of movie where I would go watch it again and feel very entertained, even though I know how the whole thing happens. Yeah, I, I think part of the like the fun and the magic of whodunits in general is like when you get to that moment in the final act where like the investigator or like the main character, whoever it is, like eventually kind of lays out everything that happened, like from like point A to point, you know, Z, whatever it is, and just everything that happens along the way. Here's here's how the murder played out, here's everything afterwards, and you get to kind of see these flashbacks and it's like, Ooh, yeah, that's cool. But I don't know, for some reason in this case, when they when Daniel Craig was going through everything that happened, I was just like, I mean, yeah, don't we, like, know all of this? I don't know. It just it didn't have that kind of, like, magical energy, I guess, for me at least. But like you said, like, it's still a very fun time regardless. So I didn't, like, really care at the end. Uh, I just think there could have maybe been, like, a few more unique twists that you didn't see coming to, like, really help it stay fresh all the way to the end. But that's just me. You know, you just said something, and maybe we should rename our podcast this. You just said from point A to point Z. Well, maybe we should be, our podcast should be point J to point Z. That is an idea right there. That's an idea. <laughs> uh, anything else for Knives Out? Not really. Go go see it. It's very fun. Very if, fun. If, if you want just like a lighthearted experience, it's a quick two hours. It does not really drag at all. Um, go see it. Good time. The other movie that we're talking about today, you could uh, 
stop listening to this podcast and go turn it on on your phone, on your TV, your whatever your streaming device is. Uh, it's the Netflix original movie, The Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring mm-hmm. Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, Anna Paquin, uh, among Harvey others. Keitel. Harvey Keitel makes an appearance. Bobby Carnaval. Let's say you say his last name right. Bobby Carnavale. Carnavale. Yeah, sure, that guy. One of those. Carnival. Bobby <laughs> Carnival. <laughs> Yeah, so this is um, the the Irishman. I've been looking forward to this movie forever. You know, as soon as we heard Robert De Niro and Scorsese are making another movie together, it's like, yes, I will be there. Take me to there. Yeah, and then when you finally hear that it's going to be Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci and Martin Scorsese all together again, you're like, yep, absolutely. Don't even need to know anything about this movie. I'm in. So one preliminary thing before we dive into some like surrounding stuff with this movie, which I think is very interesting. Uh, you heard that they had to ask Joe Pesci like 50 times to be in the movie. Yeah. He didn't uh, want to do the gangster thing a- a- anymore. I mean, he hasn't really acted at all in like 20 years. I believe it. I can't really think of the last thing I've seen him in. I read an article about it. He like basically just kind of coasted like late nineties and, uh, he just started coasting and just just disappeared. He maybe did like a voice part here or like a little something there, but pretty mm-hmm. much hasn't acted since like around 1999, 2000. Yeah, the he had a cameo in The Good Shepherd in 2006 and then was in a smaller movie called uh Love Ranch, which is in 2010. Yeah. But other than that, like had done nothing since Lethal Weapon 4, which was 98. Yeah. So, Joe Pesci so it's this feeling of, like, you haven't really seen Joe Pesci since, like, the 90s, which was the Lethal Weapon movies, but also, like, Home Alone, Goodfellas, Casino. Mm-hmm. And my he... Cousin my Cousin Vinny. yeah. So it's, like, young, fiery Joe Pesci, and he shows up in this, and he's old Joe Pesci. And holy hell, he's so good in this movie. He may he be is, my favorite part. He is definitely my favorite part of this movie. Um he like plays the straight guy for once uh in 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 the Scorsese movie normally he's like the crazy insane one um and he's just so freaking grounded it's one of those things that's like you can't imagine anyone but Joe Pesci doing that yeah um, I I think we should back up and give just a little bit of context about this movie in general yes I just want to um, say right off the top that that's like Joe Pesci if yes. I were to sell anyone, this is how I would sell someone on this movie. I'm going to pique your interest by telling you how amazing Joe Pesci is. And now we can tell him about the movie. This is Martin Scorsese's like foray back into like gangster movies, essentially. Um, and having all of these, you know, heavy hitters in this cast and a big expansive story about, you know, Jimmy Hoffa, which is, you know, this kind of legendary figure from, uh, you know, a number of years ago. So kind of kind of like a big like event movie i guess you would say scorsese is known for these like gangster mob movies uh mean streets um taxi driver and goodfellas aren't quite excuse me excuse me taxi driver and raging pole aren't quite mobster movies but they're like dinero dinero movies um yeah but he did goodfellas in the casino it's like his reputation are these mob 
movies, even though he's not, he's done so much more than mob movies. So it's one of those funny, like, yeah, he's done those movies and they're amazing, nearly perfect movies, but he's done lots of other nearly perfect movies as well. And so people got excited about it, which I just think you should be excited about a Martin Scorsese movie, period. Yes. Um, and if the world had been excited about it, then everyone would have seen Silence. Yeah, that was my next thing I was going to say, is that it's great to see people excited about like this movie in particular. It just really makes you wonder like where the marketing push was from Paramount for Silence. Like, what was that, 2016? Because um, that's a phenomenal movie. But I get it's not like an, as easy of a sell as a gangster movie, but... It's it's still like a big deal. Like Scorsese knocked it out of the park, but for the Irishman, it's definitely been kind of a big deal. Yeah, Netflix is a different thing though. Netflix knows this is Oscar bait. I don't know. That yeah, there's there's this is where you talk into the whole. So this movie wasn't getting financed by a traditional movie studio, which is insane given the like quantity of hype and the excitement around this movie. Mm-hmm. Um but the budget, especially with the de aging, what do you have the number? What was it like, 150 million or something? 180 million? Um, yeah. Well, it, apparently back in 2016, there was a Mexican production company that put that said they were going to put up 100 million uh, for the budget, and then Paramount was going to have the rights, that type of thing, and it kind of moved forward under those pretenses for a couple of years. But then, uh, part of the shtick behind the Irishman is that you're seeing these, you know, three legendary actors at various stages throughout history. So they do a lot of extremely complex visual effects, like de-aging them visually. And because of that, it kind of forced the budget to climb. And as the budget kept climbing, uh, this Mexican production company got uncomfortable, backed out, which caused Paramount to drop out, which then forced Netflix to step in from there. Allowed Netflix to step in. Netflix certainly didn't have to, but... They saw an yes. opportunity and um, I that's Netflix has been doing this interesting thing. So they just purchased this theater in New York, which was going to close and they've been showing mm-hmm. marriage story there. Um, one of those like single screen theaters that's like, you know, yeah. been open for, you know, hundred years or 80 years, whatever it is. Uh, right. Netflix is writing this weird tension between doing something that's like, kind of destroying the quote-unquote theater business but also kind of saving the theater business and helping auteurs make these like middle budget movies irishman is more expensive than a middle budget movie because of the <laughs> fx uh costs but yeah. still um so yeah so netflix it's, steps in yeah it's just great that they're like they're able and you know willing to step in for something like that because you know if one of the major studios like you know one of the th- you know, I guess three major studios now isn't able to, or isn't willing to do that. The fact that, you know, a streaming service can step in and do that and still be comfortable. Like as the budget kept rising, cause I guess Netflix bought the rights for 105 million and said they would finance it up to 125. But then as it kept going through post, the budget kept climbing from there. And so the final like official quote unquote budget figure is 159 million, which is, you know, a $34 million increase above that. But rumors are, is that it's higher than that. So it's just great that they're like still willing to throw that cash around for something like this. Right. I think it was, is it it Justin Chang, the uh, critic for the LA times? Uh, That sounds right. Yes. Um, he had an article that's great. And one of the things that he talked about 
he actually talked about it's the similarities between this and silence and sort of the um how scorsese is uh you can tell the like age that he has in in his career and how he's sort of looking back and the reflectiveness um that's it's in these couple movies but mm-hmm. that's kind of tangential to what i'm trying to say here so what i'm trying to say is one of the things he talked about was the way in which scorsese has always been kind of an anti-hollywood figure mm-hmm. um you know he's never made um a sequel he's never made a like tentpole movie he uh there's this weird tension at play where it's sort of like you know he is most would say like the greatest um, or like at least top five greatest american directors that are living mm-hmm. um you know i would probably argue maybe the best um but here's here's a movie that he wants to get made with like bankable stars that's not getting financed that's not getting made and there's this tension of like he's revered and respected by hollywood but also not totally accepted for who he is and how he wants to make the movies because they're not necessarily bankable um and it's pretty impressive the way in which he's been able to continue making movies on his terms um and most of the time they've been through major studios and they've made a lot of money and it's been just fine um but with the exception for those that aren't, that's not the case. Like he still has continued to make movies on his term again and again and again, which is pretty insane. Yeah. Like I'm trying to think like the, maybe the most like mainstream commercial one he's made was Hugo. I think. I either, imagine either that Hugo Wall Street or like, made, made a ton of money. Yeah. But even Wolf of Wall Street was a, like a three hour, like, you know, yeah, Bender. it's definitely not your like typical sort of movie, but I, I I don't have the numbers, but I imagine it made money. Like it seemed popular, and remains popular. Um, yeah, I mean the the budget for that was also a hundred million, and it was it grossed almost four hundred. So yeah. like it, it it made some money for sure, yeah, but not um, definitely not insane numbers. Yeah, but 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 like you're saying, like if you look through the course of his filmography, like it's it's easy to kind of look back now and say oh yeah like he's made all these incredible movies these are you know major events in hollywood but i think like if you take in the context like both like when they came out and just the types of movies he was making and you know the type of director he is they all still feel like creatively like daring and he's not just falling back into the system type of thing no never uh the other thing that kind of runs alongside all of this that surrounds the release of this movie, uh, I imagine this happened in an interview or a press release or, you know, something surrounding the release of Irishman, but uh, someone asked him about Marvel movies. And uh, this is all the internet's been able to talk about, at least like film Twitter for like a month and a half. It's mostly died down now, but he was like, Oh, these superhero movies, they're not really cinema. It's more like a theme park ride. Uh, like I think the comment was about as benign as that yeah and uh all of a sudden everyone's like wait a second Marvel's great we love but I Marvel. like Marvel movies <laughs> and uh it's it yeah it's it was amazing to see this you know circling back around to the Mandalorian and how baby Yoda is you know corrupting our culture uh <laughs> this is an example of all of a sudden filmmakers who've made movies for marvel have to sort of like you know revere disney and have to kind of fall in line and say like oh no disney's great these marvel movies are great like people aren't allowed to 
like you know express dissent for what's essentially the major monopoly in hollywood right now which is disney mm-hmm. um so it was interesting yeah when when i saw that comment come out like i didn't like say anything or post anything about it but inside i was like yes please say say it louder for the people in the back come on <laughs> it's just like he's What's... totally right he's totally right but it's you know these other like you know good great directors you know like who've made other movies outside of marvel in the past like you're saying they have to kind of fall in line and say like well i made a marvel movie like it's a good standalone thing on its own but like if you look at it objectively like in the context of all the other all the other marvel movies they're very similar and they all feel exactly the same so whereas scorsese's movies like they feel like scorsese movies they don't feel like a product or something like that right well, and it's, you know, it is, it's still cinema. Like, I think what he said is, like, the the Marvel movies aren't taking you along the emotional journey of, like, characters or people or, you know, there's no weight to what they're doing. It's fluff. It's, yeah. You know, his comment really was as benign as something like, it's like a theme park ride, which is true. That's what they're designed to do. Um, so to hear, oh, what's his face? The jackass that made Guardians of the Galaxy. James Gunn. Um, James Gunn. He was one of the main ones that was like, mm, blah, blah, blah. I, I'm upset at you, Scorsese, for saying this. Um, I made a great movie. And it's like, no, Guardians of the Galaxy is fine. Like, But it's it's literally a theme park ride. And that's it's, okay for what it is. Yeah. Like, it's like you, you could still like, like it's a, it's a fine movie. Like, it's fun. It's just a different, different playing field than something like this or anything, you know is not marvel or disney or just kind of anything else that feels like it's just there to sell you merchandise or feed into the next like sequel after that like the bulk of these movies just feel like saturday morning serials right and that there's not very much like weight or like gen like genuine substance to it yes now i love how we were talking about the irishman and now it's like let's just shit on disney all episode well that's but that's been (laughs) the conversation about surrounding all this for the last month month two months yeah. now um and there's it, it paints a picture that this stuff is all connected right like matt solar sites has been on twitter recently uh you know shouting from the rooftops about how disney's pulling repertory screenings um from theaters of fox movies which they've mm-hmm. long done for their own movies but like a whole like treasure trove of old movies are like not going to get repertory screenings so that disney can like control the demand for them and like if we don't pay attention to uh, you know the bigger picture of how uh, you know the movie business is happening um mm-hmm. it becomes like well i like disney because baby yoda and disney plus and it's like well that's fine but you got to pay attention that they're like being very strategic about the way in which they are controlling what you watch and what you like and you know your disney plus uh, statistics are going to determine what the next Disney project is going to be. You know, they're going to look mm-hmm. at user data and say more people are watching this or, well, a lot of people went and watched recess. So I guess we should do a recess. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and when, when, and it's fine if that happens and people like Martin Scorsese, like Noah Bachbaum are still allowed to go make movies. But when the only outlet for them is Netflix Um, that's not a healthy avenue either, right? Like Netflix is great, but it shouldn't only be Netflix. Um, Yeah. But there just aren't movie studios that are willing to produce these mid-level 
movies anymore, and that's just a shame. Yeah, which is like what I guess we should have said about Knives Out, because like it's a it's a unique film with like a original story that you know forty million dollar budget and you know it was put out by Lionsgate, so like that's fantastic, like good on them for like doing original content. Right. Yeah. No, that's that's super true, and it's probably going to be one of the higher grossing original movies of the year. I'd have to imagine. You'd hope so. At least one that's not like, you know, Mr. Rogers is going to make a bunch of money, but that's based off of, uh, you know, it's a biography movie. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's discouraging. And um, as much as it's wonderful to have the next amazing Martin Scorsese movie, like at some point Martin Scorsese is going to die and stop making movies. <laughs> Uh, and if the structure is not there to make movies like what he's making, then, you know, I don't think that's an encouraging sign for where we are, but I'd also don't think, you know, it's not like we're saying, oh, movies are dying. There's been a bunch of amazing movies this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right, we should get off the soapbox and actually talk about the, <laughs> one of the, you know, obviously one of the bigger pieces of this movie is the entire like visual effects de-aging process which caused the ballooning budget eventually put it at netflix etc but i guess the big question is is how does it look what did you think of it was it convincing for you not really but i don't think i cared uh they look they look correct when they look older you know i thought like you can get about uh 10 years younger and about 10 years older with these characters but The scenes where there's, you know, Robert De Niro is supposed to be like in his 20s or 30s or something. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. That's, you it don't just look looks like kind that. of plastic in yeah. a way. Which, like, it's cool that they can, like, keep the character, like, the same actors in different time periods and that type of thing. Like, it's amazing what technology can do. That's fun. But on the other hand, it seems kind of weird that they would spend all this money de-aging like Robert De Niro to look like he's in his 30s, but then like in that scene where he, you know, we're obviously getting into actual like content in the movie now, so spoilers from here, but when he takes the the guy who shoved his daughter out of the shop and like curb stomps him on the sidewalk, and it's like, he looks like a, like a 70-year-old man trying to stomp someone, like his movements are so like deliberate and slow, and it's like just have a body double at that point, like right, right. It's just not convincing. So yeah, it's no, just that's weird. true. It it definitely there's moments where that it takes you out of the movie, but overall, I would say the movie is interesting enough that you sort of go, well, all right. Um, it's, yeah, it's certainly an odd thing when you if you imagine it that say this effect cost a hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. it was not worth. A hundred million dollars. Um, however, yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know how else they would have done it uh, while keeping Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. Um, you know, they could have had somebody else play those parts and and been the younger version, and that would have been just fine. But but Robert De Niro was still great. Like besides, like sometimes looking much older than he's in his thirties, he was still mm-hmm. great uh, playing that character in his thirties and playing that character absolutely. And the, the essence of them, uh, Al Pacino, the same thing for his younger version. There was just points where I felt lost in when am I? Because they kind of look yeah. like they're just in their, you know, fifties for yeah. you know the whole time they're supposed to be thirty to sixty. 
Yeah, I had the that exact same problem. Like, especially with the time jump where they kind of jump forward. I think it's like twenty years or something like that. Right. Uh, where he's with his like younger daughter Peggy, and then like a couple scenes later, like all of a sudden Peggy is Anna Paquin and like in her like late twenties, thirties, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess we're like further along in time now. And that was like my barometer as opposed to how Robert De Niro looked. So that's that's true. Anna Paquin's a funny example because. Also, isn't she like almost, I'm going to, I'm going to say that she's almost 40 and she's going to be like 32, but, um, how old is Anna Paquin? Uh, we are looking it up right now. She's born in 82. <laughs> yeah. So she is, uh, 10 years older than me. So she's, uh, 37, like she's almost 40 and she's supposed to be playing like a 27 year old, which also is weird. Um, she was great in it. I don't. There's another discussion. People are upset because she didn't talk a whole lot uh, in the movie, and you know, it's. A, I don't understand that at all. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's you're you're bringing a preconceived idea of something that you think you're supposed to be upset about, um, which is a valid critique when you're talking it overall about movies and what movies get made. You know, yeah, the but that's Black not Dole this test. movie. <laughs> it's not. I agree, and and the way someone talked about it online was her silence speaks more than her words would have, you know, if you'd given her, you know, 20 more minutes of her talking on screen. uh, That's exactly where I came down on it because like in, in the movie itself, when, once we see her, she doesn't speak until they're all sitting around the TV. And then there's the news that Jimmy off is dead. And she's like, why haven't you called uh, Joe or whatever the wife's name is? Right. And that that's when like she finally decides to say something. She like, might have had oh. one other line before that, but but yes, the essence is like she when she talks, you're supposed to it's about Jimmy Hoffa and it's damning upon her relationship with her father and Yeah. It feels more impactful than if she had had, you know, five or six different scenes with like full of dialogue before that. I just don't think it has the same kind of weight. But. Right. I thought she was great. I also thought she it felt like she was thirty seven. The whole, the whole thing sometimes felt a little odd age-wise. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's okay. I can see that. Joe Pesci worked the whole time. I felt like Joe Pesci was the age he was supposed to be for the times that he was on screen. He's a chameleon, man. Joe Pesci. <laughs> um, so now that we're back on Joe Pesci, would you say that it is your favorite performance of the movie? Man, he and De Niro are like neck and neck. Um, yeah, both are so good in it. Um, yeah, I would, you know, I, I often think like, Oh, who would I want to win an Oscar? And, uh, I would, I would, I would give an Oscar to either of them for their performance. So good. Um, so lived in neither of them. Well, Joe Pesci hasn't done anything for a long time, but Robert De Niro hasn't done anything good for a long time. So to see him show up and like carry all of the gravity, um, and to not be like, oh, I'm trying to relive the glory of my past, but, like, I'm reliving the glory of my past, and then, you know, the movie is, like, moves forward, and the, the final act of the movie is about him as an old man retelling, reliving, living with the consequences of I don't want to talk life. about the ending just yet, just yet, because I, yeah. I have thoughts about the ending. But that's I was only going to say what I just said, but the, the yeah. sense that, like, part of what makes it so good is here is old De Niro being the old version of this character. And like yeah. the depth that comes and shines through his performance at that point is so rich. 
Um, yeah. So I think Al Pacino is fun in this movie to like see him with these, you know, his other like friends and, you know, the same type of movie he was in back in the day. But his performance is so over the top and like a little too animated for my taste that it doesn't really feel that grounded. Uh, I didn't really care for it, but I think Joe Pesci in this movie is just phenomenal. So I got a hot take. Okay. Is Al Pacino a good actor? <laughs> I might uh, say no. I would say yes, but solely because of heat. Yeah, I mean, I think I you can heat. pluck a couple good performances out. Like, obviously, Godfather, Godfather 2, um, and Heat. But I, and he's been good in stuff. Uh, but I just think overall, every time I see him on the screen, I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. Here's old Al again, like doing his thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like he he just kind of has the same type of delivery, the same type of uh, intonation and pattern of speaking that it just feels like another Al Pacino performance. Yeah, as opposed Which, to like a character. Sometimes that's fine. Like sometimes you get someone like Matthew McConaughey that shows up in a movie, and you're like, oh, you're being Matthew McConaughey. But <laughs> Matthew McConaughey can like live into what he's doing still while doing his shtick. Yeah, uh, you know, he shows up in Wolf of Wall Street, and you believe that he's like. A, you know a hedge fund banker that's like screwing people out of a ton of money and yeah. super successful as it and you see him in magic Mike, and it's like yeah of course you're a strip co-owner like that same accent works for both somehow um <laughs> <laughs> whereas like al pacino shows up and it's like he was in once upon a time in hollywood and it's like yeah you're the same sort of like energetic weird old man in both of these things right now yeah uh i i i really like Joe Pesci, though. I just want to talk about Joe Pesci. I think he's not in the movie a ton, but when he is, he's just magnetic to watch. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way that he, like, interacts with the other actors during their line readings. He just seems very present at all times. And, like, you know how some movies, like, during dialogue, you can have the other persons just kind of, like, sitting there just kind of nodding. And they're just, like, kind of, like, they're, like, kind of there. But I feel like with Joe Pesci, you can see all the wheels turning in his head. Uh, and it just feels like he lives in like those, like the silent parts as opposed to the actual like dialogue pieces. But so I would about, about the end of act two in this movie. So again, spoilers, uh, Joe Pesci goes and tells Robert De Niro's character that you got to go do something that Robert De Niro's character doesn't want to do. Um, and it's that point that I think seals Joe Pesci in this movie for me and why what made it so interesting and so good because if he had just been in the movie and been a good listener and been in this like gravity within the whole thing that'd be fine right like he'd be good Mm -hmm. and be like joe pesci he was in that movie but then he shows up and he like turns the key and suddenly like you know unlocks a whole like the last act of the story yeah and what he asks de niro to do uh to go kill somebody it's this like this is what weighs on De Niro for the rest of the movie and so it's mm-hmm. the fact that you've built up all of this this goodwill towards Joe Pesci's character and then he you know uses all that and cashes in on it while still remaining the same thing that he's been the whole time that's the weight that comes from it uh, and that's what succeeds like that's the moment where it like nailed it for me yeah right on man I get it Joe Pesci Here's what's going to be, I'm, I'm calling this now, This I'm already stressed about this. And I hate the Oscars. <laughs> I hate the Oscars and I'm stressed about this. 
the jackasses that be are going to force Brad Pitt to be nominated for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a Best Supporting Actor, even though he's a co-lead. He's a co-lead, but he's going to get nominated for Best Supporting, and you know it. And it's going to be Joe Pesci versus Brad Pitt, and I those are two of the more engaging, like some of my more favorite performances that I've seen in a really long time. I loved Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what to do there. I I, I feel like that's a that's that's a Sophie's choice. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah, I guess I'm just trying to think of who else would be in like the lead actor then. What you what do you I mean? I feel like. I mean, like, who's in the lead actor then at this point? You got to fill five slots, and I feel like there's not a ton of standout five actors so far. I feel like Adam Driver's probably a shoe in for Marriage Story. Yeah, absolutely. From what um, I heard. Yes. I watched it last night, and he absolutely is. And the, the reason why they put Brad Pitt in supporting is because Leo. Leo is, like, the lead, and they don't want the, to pit the two of them against, you know, pit the two of them against each other. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's what's going to happen there, I imagine. But, you know, yeah. De, uh, DiCaprio and I bet De Niro would get nominated for, for this movie. And Adam Driver, that's three of them. And then, you know random wild card actor two randos <laughs> i could see brad pitt being nominated for ad astra but losing oh my god did you ever see ad astra yet yes oh yes did we talk about this i don't think we did pot about it dude fuck i loved ad astra it's still my favorite thing i've seen this year i think i need weird? to see it again i really really liked it and i'm not sure that it would hold up still in my mind it really clicked for me. Did you see High Life? No, it's on my list, though. Oh, you got to watch High Life. Because they're, like, si- similar movies, but also very different movies. But Is High Life about, like, fatherhood? No, but it's about, okay. like, a deep space adventure. Okay. Like, the deep space part of it was, like, fine, but it was, like, it was the character pieces of Ad Astra and, like, his relationship with his father that just, like, gutted me. Yeah, uh, it was definitely one of the more like impactful movie like theater experiences I've ever had. Yeah, there was some stunning visual moments in Ad Astra. Yes, and well, yet no one talks about that movie. But yeah, it's because whatever. I think some pieces of it were like it had like seventy five, eighty percent of a of a great movie, and then like twenty percent of like empty holes. Um, I think. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the the way it was marketed too, because in like all of the trailers for the movie, it shows that that moon chase where they're on the the quads or whatever, and yeah. then they're like firing guns at each other, and it makes it seem like it's this big action epic, but in reality, like it's a very slow plotting character piece, which is like that's a James Gray movie. It reminded me, which I realized afterwards, it was kind of based on this, but it reminded me a ton of Apocalypse Now uh yeah it's it's sort of based on heart of darkness um which is what apocalypse now is based on Mm -hmm. and so there's that sense of this like getting to you know in heart of darkness it's the river in the middle of congo Mm -hmm. um you know the unexplored piece of vietnam to find this person and the person doesn't meet any of your expectations once you find them um it's that story and the narration in Ad Astra just 
I having seen Apocalypse Now recently before felt very Apocalypse Now. So yeah, I can see that now. Um, but the Irishman pivoting back. Yes. Uh, what else? What else do we want to say about the Irishman? I guess where where does it rank in terms of Scorsese movies for you? I guess do we want to talk about the ending first? Um. Yeah. Yes. I would love to talk about the ending because I feel like it's so fascinating in comparison to Silence. Yes. Um, and if you haven't seen Silence, like, do yourself a favor and go see it. It's very emotionally gutting, uh, but it's well worth your time. And I feel like the like the last forty five minutes of The Irishman and Silence are like perfect companion pieces. Correct. And uh, it's just a very fascinating movie for Scorsese to make at this point in his career because he's like he's getting older, he's kind of winding down, um, but he's made like some of the most prolific or like the most well recognized, uh, well regarded um, mobster gangster movies of all time. And The Irishman is so interesting because for the first like two and a half hours, you're sitting there like. Is this just like a biopic or like what is the point of this? And then when the last, you know, half hour, 45 minutes of the movie, it's just De Niro being old and coming to grips with like being an old man and all of his friends are dead and his family is dead. And then it's just about like the pointlessness of it all and like what was it all for? Like everyone around him is gone and now he's just like suffering silently alone. And it's just so devastating. It's just a total gut punch at the end. Like the final shot of the Irishman is phenomenal. Loved it. So both of what the, the tie that you're, you're weaving between silence and the Irishman is that these are movies which ask questions, which are so much bigger than what the subject matter is. They're asking a question about like, our mortality and what it means to you know live a good life or live a life with meaning you know where does that come from um the jesuit priests in silence go to japan and there's this the you know the 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 moment that like stresses people out and is is uh the andrew garfield character is being uh, had been tortured a little bit, but then his torture is hearing someone else tortured and saying like, give up your faith so that that person can live. And it's mm-hmm. this question of like, what does it look to, you know, to give up this thing that has meant so much to you? Like, this is how you've oriented your whole life and what's the value in it. Right. And yeah. that same question, uh, is there for De Niro's character in this of you've oriented your whole life around this. Um, but at what cost and what does that mean and what effect does it have? Um, and just like Wolf of Wall Street did a couple of years ago where, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, it's sort of like it, it, it takes you to the mountaintop. So, so to speak. But then when you get there, it's just like crawling on the ground high on quaaludes. Like, <laughs> you know this is yeah. you, so you got to the top what does that mean um and there, there's 
the people that don't like these movies would say like, oh, well, Wolf of Wall Street glorifies this bad behavior where in fact, I think it's an indictment upon it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't glorify it. It sort of says, well, this is what it is. Is it all that? I think there's one scene that's like a perfect encapsulation of what you're talking about too. And that's when he is in the mausoleum picking out his burial site. And he's looking over these different slots on a wall, trying to figure out where he wants his body to go once he's dead. He's prop, propped himself up on these two crutches. He's looking around, and then he points to one at the very top, and he's like, right there. And so it's like, yeah, he'll be at the top over all these you know, other people, but like, he's dead. What does it matter? Like, right. And it's just, it's devastating. But like, it's, it's very satisfying at the same time. Right. Yeah, it it points to something that's bigger than just the story that it's about. It's bigger than just the person that's watching it. And that's what ultimately makes it. That's what ultimately makes it cinema and not a theme park ride. <laughs> yeah, or it actually like forces you to think about your own mortality and like challenges you and like your worldview and like what are you doing, you know? And uh for the first like good portion of this movie the first like two-thirds like it was just like a fun time didn't really get a whole lot of that maybe some flashes of it here and there but it's the really the the end of this movie that really kind of seals it for me in terms of like it being kind of a masterpiece so one thing that stuck out to me i'm going to pivot a little bit from what you just said Mm -hmm. when i was thinking watching this movie i was reminded of a quote from thelma schoonmaker who's edited practically every one of his movies and she said in an interview, Marty's movies aren't violent until I make them violent. And this is one that Just felt very true to that. All-time great quote. The, the moments of violence in this are there because of, of the touches that she put on it, right? Like, it's not a very violent movie until something, like, stark startling happens. And the moments of violence are supposed to, like, feel like a, 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 like a gunshot or a knife attack or whatever it is. Like it's, it, it like elicits that response when you're sitting there. It's sort of, it's a jarring experience. And Thelma Schoonmaker is just a gift. Um, yeah. And yeah, like if, you know, there's, there's a couple scenes where De Niro will walk by someone on the sidewalk and like fire off a couple shots and then like just walk away. And, but like in the hands of any other editor, it's just like, it doesn't have that kind of punctuation. But when she, edits it like you it's like a visceral bang and it feels very like jarring and shocks you out of you know your you know current state just kind of in the zone watching this movie and like just phenomenal work overall i think that's all i have to say on the irishman besides you should watch it it's great it's very long but it's great so there's two other things i want to talk about yep uh one there's there's been this thing going around on twitter and uh I'm assuming Facebook as well. I don't use Facebook. But about how you can, uh, someone broke it down where you can watch The Irishman as a like a four-part miniseries as opposed to a three-and-a-half-hour movie. And they're like, I haven't you seen don't this. Have... Oh, really? Nope. Oh, uh, someone broke it down, found the, the right spots to cut where it's like episodic breaks. Um, and so instead of watching it as a whole three-and-a-half-hour sitting, you can watch it in essentially 45-minute chunks. Um, how do you feel about that? Because you saw it in theaters where you can't really move, you're locked in, you're there, the movie's going to keep going whether you leave or not. Uh, I watched it at home, 
once it hit Netflix. But I made as much of an effort as possible to watch it in one sitting. I took like one break to go to the bathroom and another break to get some food. But other than that, like one sitting locked in, I was there. Right. How do you feel about breaking it up into episodic chunks? Um, I mean, watch the movie. However, you're going to be able to watch the movie. I, I think it's fine to take a pause if you need to take a pause. Um, but I don't think I'd like put it down for a couple days and then come back to it. Um, it's just not built like that. But it's a three and a half hour movie. <laughs> Have some patience with yourself as you're <laughs> watching it. Um, but if you can sit down and watch it all, I'd say do it. You know. Uh, yeah. I got the rare experience of seeing it in the theater. It was in a theater here in Nashville for a week as like a special run, and it's like you know, no one gets to do that. It's it, it's in theaters for like five seconds, if in theaters at all. Um, right. So most of us watching it are going to watch it on Netflix. So mm-hmm. you know, don't feel bad about that. Watch it. Yeah. But I wouldn't say like let's go try to watch it in forty-five minute chunks feels unnecessary i think if if it's at all possible you should try and watch it as close to one sitting as possible i think there's just so many payoffs in the in the final act that tie back which like you can remember i guess if you watch you know the second half like a day later or something like that but i think seeing the progression in pretty quick succession it just it held a lot more weight than if I was trying to like remember like who that character was, what time period I'm in, that type of thing. So right. I think it should be viewed as a three and a half hour movie if possible. It's certainly not designed to be episodic. No. Uh, and then the last question I had before we left. So we talked about how Scorsese is constantly doing his own thing and isn't, you know, you're flying he's flying in the face of con, you know typical hollywood convention um and he has a pretty impressive filmography where if you had to would you kind of like rank this in terms of you know scorsese movies i'm not asking you to go list them one by one but is this like masterpiece level is this like a good scorsese movie or is it just kind of yeah it was it was, it was a good movie i'd have to put it in the top 10 i imagine of his movies Mm-hmm. but there's a lot of movies in that top 10, you know, as <laughs> I, true. there's at least 20 of them. Uh, as I think of just my favorite movies in the last decade, I don't, we're not going to do a decade list or anything, but silence and Wolf of wall street are on there for me. Uh, okay. And, 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 and that's in the last, like all the movies in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. um, you know, those are just, masterpieces i don't think i loved this quite as much as i loved either of those movies okay Um, but it was still fantastic and i imagine it'll work something like casino does like i think we're watching casino again now and sort of going oh wow casino this is a great movie uh where i think for a while it was sort of like oh casino it's not good fellows but um right it's a different thing so I imagine it'll work kind of like that, where it's going to be one of those like masterpieces that you, that isn't quite labeled a masterpiece for a while. Yeah, I I can see that. I think just what it what it does in, in terms of like the point that it comes in his you know filmography and like what it's saying about like both him as a creator and just uh, 
don't know, just life in general. I don't know. It just, it really clicked for me. I think it's a great movie. I, I think it's, yeah, like you had said, I, I think it, it'd probably be at like my bottom 10 of his movies right now, but I could definitely see it like going up in the future. I think that there's just like the, the time period issues, the kind of de-aging thing. There's definitely like some quibbles here and there, but I wonder if it'll just kind of melt away, you know? Uh, you know, I imagine that, part of what's weird right now is we know Robert De Niro right now and what he looks like and the fact that he's an old guy. And I think when you're watching this movie in 10 years or 20 years when Robert De Niro is dead and it'll be this experience of you're watching not just Robert De Niro then, but Robert De Niro, you know, the, the altered Robert De Niro of many times and it, and it won't stand out as much because we're not living with the news report or a live picture of this is what Robert De Niro looks like right now. Right. Um, it'll be like, oh, he's supposed to be younger. He's supposed to be older. I think you'll be able to extend your imagination. I mean, I hope a little bit when um, it's not so. We're living in 2019 right now, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I I can totally see that. Uh, I'm I'm curious to see it again. I don't really know when I will get to see it again because it is a very long movie. But uh, if you have not seen The Irishman yet, it is well worth your time. And we didn't spoil too much, so. Even if you made it all the way through this podcast, there's still t- you can do it, and it's you know you're still gonna have a wonderful experience. Yes, yes. We should probably pod about Marriage Story sometime soon once you've seen it. It's on Netflix now too. Speaking of Netflix originals, I'm I'm watching it later this evening, so we'll discuss here very soon. There you go. I watched it last night. I've heard great things. Randy Newman does the score for Marriage Story. What? Really? Randy Newman from Toy Story? Yes, sir. Okay, that's interesting. We'll leave you uh, with that fun factoid at the end of the podcast here. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, we'll definitely be discussing some more movies here soon. Uh, Marriage Story, uh, Rise of Skywalker comes out here in a couple weeks. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right. Until then, this has been another out. episode. Of, I'm in the middle of closing us <laughs> out right now. <laughs> Just edit my voice. Oh, I guess now you said that. I was going to say just edit my voice out. Yeah. Oh, it's well. too late. This, is, this this has been kind of a meandering garbage truck on fire today, which is okay. Oh, uh, it's what the people came for. Give them what they want. Give the people what they want. Get the people uh, <laughs> Until next time, this has been God Save the Screen. Uh, I am Jordan Garrett, and you are Zach Christensen. Nailed it. Nailed it. We'll see you next time.